Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie, monster, and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode, we will be covering a film that underperformed in its day, but has since grown to have a strong following. Karen Kusama's excellent Jennifer's Body, about a teenage girl who is transformed into a succubus after a satanic ritual, and her friend who has to figure out what's going on. Fans of the show can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Google, and iTunes, and also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes on genre film with bylines at Nightmare on Film Street and Shutters the Bite, and I've co-edited two books on monster media, Alien and Philosophy and Stranger Things and Philosophy, as well as having written book chapters on topics like the devil, demonology, Cloverfield, Frankenstein, and others. I'm very pleased to introduce two excellent guests for today's episode. Nolan McBride is the host and producer of the Dead Ringers podcast, a bi-weekly podcast covering horror movie double features that share similar DNA yet have distinct personalities. And Emily Von Seal, which you might also know her as Horrorella, is a Dead Ringers podcast co-host with bylines at Bloody Disgusting, Daily Dead News, and Talk Film Society, among others. Welcome, Nolan and Emily. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. So to summarize Jennifer's Body, Jennifer's Body, directed again by the excellent Karen Kusama from a script by Diablo Cody, follows Anita Needy Lesnicki, played by Amanda Seyfried, a nervous and somewhat introverted teenager attached at the hip to her popular cheerleader friend, Jennifer Check, played by Megan Fox. They take a trip to see a quote-unquote big city rock band called Low Shoulder, who are playing the teen's small town of Devil's Kettle, Minnesota. After the venue burns down, Jennifer gets into the band's van only to come back changed, demonically possessed, and seducing and killing local boys. Needy has to figure out what happened to Megan and what she can do to stop it. Kind of how we always start with these sorts of things is to give our general impressions of the film and review it out of five. So uh, maybe start us off, Nolan? Sure. This is one I did see theatrically when it came out uh, in 2008 and was a fan of at the time. Like, I think I was even a maybe a bigger fan than Juno just because I knew that Diablo Cody was like a horror fan. So coming mm-hmm. out of Juno, hearing that she was going to make a horror film was a dream come true. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, I think we'll get into it. But as is often often been said, I think the movie is a really good sort of synthesis of like Diablo Cody's love of things like Buffy and Evil Dead mm-hmm. and uh, sort of her creating her own teen horror movie. But uh, one thing we'll talk about later too, maybe is that this movie feels like it should be a franchise and I wish there was so many more. So it feels like it's building a world more than just a movie. Yeah, especially with that ending. Yeah, exactly. Like, I want to see her go out and fight, you know, something else um, or, you know, see how things change with her since she, at that point, has powers. Is that, Uh are you okay with spoilers? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I want to talk about that in my sort of deep dive portion, too, because it has some interesting implications for 
for how she got those powers and what that means. And yeah, I've just always been a, uh, I've talked about before, uh, like I have a big sweet spot for teen horror, you know, things like Buffy, especially when they have, you know, kind of really colorful dialogue. And I know that's something that not everyone loved, but I Mm -hmm. really like it in this movie. And yeah, it's just, it's just really fun. It's sort of like the perfect example of just what I want from a fun horror experience. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the humor really hits and I think the monster aspects as we'll go into are really interesting and sort of unique among among other cinematic monsters actually. And and one thing that really did give me strong Buffy vibes by the way is uh is the the library they find with the she plays it off but it's a pretty substantial <laughs> occult section for a small Minnesota town public school library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chip is like surprised. Turns out we have a literal manual on how to defeat a thing. Love it. What would you <laughs> give it out of 5? Um I would probably give it a 4. Maybe a four and a half if we're doing half stars. Yeah, half stars are fine. Because I mean, normally I would probably keep it at a four, but I did, like I was mentioning to Emily, I, I rewatched it with the director's mm-hmm. commentary and hearing Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama talk about it kind of made me like up at up at, at least half a star because I don't know, there, there's a lot more thought uh, that Karen Kusama put into it than a lot of people would expect. Like mm-hmm. she kept name dropping like Sergio Leone and stuff. And like she, she has very specific classical references that most people probably aren't going to pick up on, yeah. but are there nonetheless. Totally. That's great. Uh, what about you, Emily? Um, I I did not see this film in theaters. I saw it probably a few months later whenever it first hit VOD and we rented it one night. Um, the first time I watched it, Tards on the Table, I didn't like it. I was falling into the camp of this feels so forced and I'm sick of Diablo Cody's you know, funky dialogue. It feels like it's overused here. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally fell for the bullshit marketing gimmick of painting, um, painting Megan Fox as nothing but a sex symbol and yeah. nothing else when she's actually a really talented actress, like top to bottom I was in I was in the bad camp, but mm-hmm. so many of us were at the time. And coming around to this film over the past few years, I've really come to appreciate her performance in it. I've really come to appreciate the story. I don't think the dialogue is as ham-fisted as I initially did. I think it's clever and punchy and everything just rolls together and kind of everything bounces off of each other in terms of the characters that, and their interactions. And I yeah. think it's a really great... I think it's a really great film that really embraces a feminist perspective years before that was coming into vogue. And we were really learning how to understand that as a film going audience. Mm -hmm. So it's something that I've really, you know, I've, a lot of us have come around to appreciate and I'm including myself in that, but now it's really, really one of my favorites. And I love this film. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, mean, that's definitely one of the reasons why I was so pleased to, sort of revisit it for the podcast because I think that I, I love things I love as a, as a podcaster, as a writer, I love championing films that are underseen or that were misperceived in their day and, and to kind of shine a new light on it. And I think this one cries out for that in a lot of ways. Definitely. Yeah. It's something that I think was just really unfairly maligned when it first came out for a lot of reasons. But now that people are coming around and seeing it for what it is and really reevaluating it more on an even scale, I think that it's wonderful how it's found a new audience. Absolutely. What would you give it out of what would you give it out of five? Uh, I'd probably 
probably do a 4.5 as well. I think that it's not a perfect film, but it does so many things so well and it has so much heart that it kind of makes up for that half star. Mm-hmm. Okay, totally fair. Absolutely. So for myself, yeah, it, it's another one that I also saw on uh, at home. Uh, I missed it in theaters. I do remember the ad campaign really selling a different movie than... I think we actually got, and I probably would have seen it in theaters if it were advertised as the movie that it is. My interpretation of it, I love the performances. I think Megan Fox's uh, night and day change as uh, her, I'll say for now, her evolved self Mm -hmm. uh, is, is fantastic. She really sells the aggressive horror aspects and there are scenes where she'll flip tones in a minute and it shows that she's, you know, she exhibits a lot of talent that I think went unacknowledged in its day. I love her aspects with uh, Seyfried's character. The direction as a whole is very strong and uh, the cinematography is very effective. And one thing I appreciated rewatching it that I didn't remember is I love the use of music to sort of uh, trigger the audience's perception of the changes that she's gone through when she's in sort of predator mode, Mm -hmm. that scene of her sort of swimming in the lake towards the camera. uh, I love that scene, not because it's Megan Fox swimming in a lake towards the camera, but because it's a company, it's her first really post predatory moment. And it's done to all of a sudden basically metal. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That was a great choice. Yeah. And to add to that, there's something so primal about the visuals of that shot. You know, she's in this lake all by herself. She's like slicing through the water and Mm -hmm. everything is moving so fluid and so smooth. And like she she's encountering no resistance because she's like the apex predator. Yeah, it's it's like this Jaws like moment. And I thought that it was just such a great way to show that she's different now. Yeah. Um, Actually, I was just saying leading into that scene, um, it's a it's a totally different type of metal, but there's like a different metal song as she's approaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the guy's name, Jonas. Yeah. Oh yeah, Jonas. Um, and yeah, I, I like uh, again, Karen Kuzama mentioned in the commentary, like wanting to sort of evoke like the fantasy elements of metal, like like that scene almost evokes a like metal uh, heavy metal cover, like her walking into the like after she gets out of the uh, water and like walks in the forest and. Mm-hmm. You just see like animals around her and stuff. It's, uh, I don't know, it's striking. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Kusama is is very visionary and it really comes out well. So I, th- I think for myself, I would ultimately give it four stars out of five. I like a lot about it. I think some of the tonal shifts to the more kind of comedic elements don't land as well as I'd like. But ultimately, I think it's a great film and it's it deserves a new, fresh audience, I think. Yeah. Agreed. So to kind of the to sort of spoil the deep dive mm. element, she becomes, and we can get into how this happened later. I, I won't talk about just yet because there's there's plenty of time. But she becomes uh, effectively a succubus, which is uh, we'll dig into it. But uh, it's a specific type of or, or function of demon, and so I wanted. I always like to go into the history of the folklore of the thing. Uh, if it has that sort of background and this definitely has that background. Cool. So incubi and succubi, uh, respectively the masculine and feminine forms of demons 
that do kind of the same thing are demonic beings that seek sort of sexual congress with humans of the opposite sex in sort of traditional Judeo-Christian folklore. The words incubus and succubus from Latin literally mean one who lies on and one who lies under, respectively. Succubi can appear in the flesh as beautiful, voluptuous women, most commonly in folklore who visit men in their sleep, uh, especially men who sleep alone. And the sexual activities of succubi supposedly are, are said to cause erotic dreams and nocturnal emissions. <laughs> their story. They have a folkloric, <laughs> they have a folkloric explanation for nocturnal emissions because it's not just I had a dream. In most traditions, the goal of the succubi or the incubi is to generate either demon children or humans with warped natures of some sort. Uh, medieval Christians came to call all children of such unions, quote, cambians. Uh, famous cambians from fiction and legend include Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest and Merlin of Arthurian legend, who's supposed to be the offspring of a nun seduced by an incubus. Not the band, <laughs> mind you, but the entity. Um, so by medieval times, succubi were believed to be agents of the devil who continually tempt men to commit sexual sins, sometimes by promising immortality. And succubi often appear in the records of witchcraft trials. Because uh, if we know one thing about the witch trials, is if you're making stuff up, you can make up whatever you want. <laughs> and literally. Describe it to, there are like, no limits. <laughs> literally. You're just, you know, it was, um, it was a succubus. Because it was. Mm-hmm. Prove me wrong. I did. Huh? Like, you don't have a fact checker. So, uh, so the, the, the Jewish community also had uh, an equivalent, folklorically, of incubi and succubi, but not for cambians, not for the, the offspring, hmm. but rather um, a sex with demons, male or female, resulted in demon children. And the most famous succubus was Lilith who is considered queen of the demons in that tradition and the one of Satan's wives. And the, uh, and an interesting note too is in the Latin uh, Vulgate translation of Isaiah, the single biblical occurrence of the word Lilith is translated Lamia. Oh. Although, huh. yeah. Although the concept of a Lamia has its own independent history in Greek thought, but that's, that's an off topic can of worms. But interestingly enough, considering this is a uh, influence by Raimi that then Lamia connects back to uh, drag me to hell. Right. Yeah. Which is also an excellent movie. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting too. Cause a, as a side note, typically demons and supernatural entities wouldn't be considered monsters. Typically. Uh, I actually want to do a whole episode of how I even define that for the purposes of the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think part of that is because monsters are usually considered corporeal entities and in terms of how we talk about them. And I don't think that actually makes sense because if you look at things that would be, say, extra dimensional or godlike, they might have monstrous attributes, uh, but they're not corporeal in the sense that we understand it. So uh, I, I'm so glad that we get to do this episode and I can start talking about things that don't necessarily have corporeality. Well, and I do feel like there's a, there's a couple sort of monsters or creatures that do, that typically don't take corporeal form that, but that we recognize like monsters. Like, so I do think mm -hmm. succubus is one. Another one would be like Wendigo. 
Um, yeah. Which yes. Which oh, if you yeah. like some some show that as just one possessed person, uh, you know, ravenous shows them as essentially the same as Jennifer, like they're cannibals that eat people, mm-hmm. but. And, you know, sometimes they're just straight up a spirit. Um, yeah. But we we still treat those because they're, they're, they're distinct enough as a creature that, or, the, you know, they, I guess they have a distinct enough characteristics that we take them as something more, even though, yeah, traditionally they don't have a real body. And if you are, you know, start looking at Jennifer, the thing that's in her is not necessarily her. So like. Right. Yeah. No, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's exactly the line for me. Like, I wouldn't do a garden variety demon per se that, that, oh, it just possesses someone. It's not distinct. But but when you come into something that is uh, a variant of its subclass that's unique enough, I think that it qualifies. And and a succubus or an incubus are great examples. Mm Mm-hmm. So in, in fiction, succubi have been represented in Western literature for quite some time, in addition to having Greek and Sumerian parallels. Um, one of the, so in 1492, Angelo Poliziano and some, I'm going to butcher these names sometimes and people are going to angrily write to me, but I mean well. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> only so much you can I really do, do mean well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know, unfortunately, all languages and I have no fact checker other than me. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, Poliziano published his Latin poem Lamia, but it was in 1492, but it was Keats's poem of the same name in, in 1819 that inspired artists and writers of the Romantic era. And in the 20th century, a, signib- a significant number of tales use the terms incubus or succubus, but it's not necessarily referencing the traditional meaning folklorically. In those stories, such a character is often treated as a just a demonic character or some sort of vampire. Uh, like in Mar- Marion Crawford's short story, For the Blood is the Life, 1905. Mm-hmm. And then in cinema, uh, a really interesting famous film has some incubus-like qualities, which is Rosemary's Baby, obviously Roman Polanski's 1968 film, which follows a lot of the incubus themes, except for instead of being a garden variety incubus demon, it's Satan himself. Like King Incubus. Yeah, yeah. So like number one stunner, the, (laughs) the incubus himself. And then right before that in 66, there was a movie called Incubus, by Leslie Stevens, who gave us the story of a succubus who falls in love and turns to God. Um, it's funny because there's a more recently, uh, obviously Jennifer's Body is one of the most uh, culturally important recent films about a succubus. Um, but I was really influenced early on in a movie I saw on the Sci-Fi Channel on cable, uh, 2002 Saint Sinner, which was a uh, directed by Joshua Butler for, from a Clive Barker story, which it follows priests who have to hunt down two escaped, accidentally released succubi that escape into the 21st century. And it's not even, it's a cable movie. It's not even great. But I knew what succubi were from that. And, and so uh, I'm really happy to be able to cover them on an episode. I was going to say, I've never heard uh, of that one. And I think until at some point while researching for uh, pairing potentials for Dead Ringers, I really didn't know there was any other succub- uh, succubus movies. And one that I've found but need to actually verify because I haven't seen it yet is um, Death by Temptation. Have either of you guys seen that? 
I have not. No, uh uh. It's, uh, I got it released by Vinegar Syndrome. Um, and it's, I don't know much about it other than it is, I think, explicitly a succubus. So it's one I really want to look into um, as far as comparisons for uh, Jennifer's body. That sounds really interesting. I do want to mention, uh, I want to go into the demon design a little bit too before we kind of really dive in because I think it's interesting. So Jennifer's demon form was accomplished with a combination of practical effects and and makeup and VFX. And so uh, VFX was used for the full transformation by the KNB EFX group mm-hmm. and the moving picture company. And the moving ki- picture company came up with a five-stage process for Jennifer's transformation. According to an interview with the team, uh, quote, I'll just quote for these, stage one is beautiful Jennifer, and then two and three were strictly makeup where her eyes became more recessed and she would start to look plain like the rest of us. And stage four was some custom dentures that can be made for her. And then visual effects in stage four was mainly facial warping and recessing her eyes some more and having a a pinning effect to her irises and a variety of other musculature deforms, just bringing her cheekbones down more, et cetera. And then stage five involved the full appliance attached to Megan's face. And then her real jaw would be greened essentially inside of her mouth. And the appliance would drop down below her real jaw. And then visual effects is all quote. So forgive it's uh it's a little wordy mm-hmm. and then below her real jaw and then visual effects essentially owned everything in her mouth and everything outside would have been a special effects appliance. And then there would have been a lot of cleanup because of the way it's attached to her face. And then interestingly, uh, so end of quote, and then interestingly, to lessen the burden on, on Megan Fox, they alter the plan a little bit to hire a photo double. And then every day, that glorious photo double for 10 days straight would just sit in a chair with this full green screen appliance on her face. And then they'd shoot the jaw and all Megan would have to do is wear the dentures. <laughs> so, oh my God, team player. Yeah. I know, 10 days, basically <laughs> uncredited. Like, you know what, we're going to just, what a, what a saint. Hopefully she got a nice <laughs> paycheck. I hope she did. I'm going to find her name after the cast just to give her a personal <laughs> shout out because that is damned admirable. <laughs> um, and the end result, full transformation, it's kind of a cool design, even, even though it's a little simple, is a Jennifer with inhuman eyes and she has this jaw that opens up beyond the boundaries of a human face and it's full of this kind of circle of razor sharp teeth Mm -hmm. and it's it's kind of simple but it it looks pretty cool and it's really effective i it was a couple years ago and i'm sorry i don't remember where i saw it but i did see a production still i'm not sure if it would have been phase four or phase five from what you just described sure but it was i could see the appliance on her face and there was green where they were going to highlight um and clean up the the around it for vfx but i was just so i thought it was really cool how much of that transformation they did practically given the fact that so much stuff is digital and i was really impressed to see that they put the work and the effort and the care into doing it as practically as they could absolutely i mean i mean now i think a lot of really auteur filmmakers are re-emphasizing the practical to a greater degree in outside of movies like the Marvel canon and Star Wars. But in the late 2000s, this is made in 2009, 
uh, that was super uncommon because they just started to get really good with VFX and VFX was everywhere. So it was definitely a uh, artistic commitment of the filmmaker. And I think it definitely, like you're saying, it pulled it off a lot more believably. Yeah. And this is also, I feel like the era when there's a lot of examples of studios stepping in and replacing practical effects, whole cloth, uh, like the thing remake. Yeah. Um, but I think this, yes. this like like you said, this is actually a really good marriage of the two. And to the point where like, yeah, if you pause it or if you look really closely, you can find flaws. But like the effect, it works exactly as, it's effect, as it needs to. And again, I think is just sort of distinct enough from, from a lot of other monsters we see that like it really sticks out. Like the, the closest thing I would even say would be the vampires from Blade 2 just because of the way their jaws open up but this because mm -hmm. it opens from the middle and also I don't know I, I was looking at it this time thinking that you know it it's the Chelsea smile you know so that gets associated with Joker but yeah I was thinking of Black Dahlia like the more infamous Chelsea smile um oh, and yeah. like and how that maybe whether it was intentional or not you know that feels very like apt for this uh this particular creature that she would resemble something like that. That is such a good reference. It really does. Uh, and what, when, when I get to kind of the themes in the film that I, I really like, uh, I'll, I'll return to that because I actually wrote an academic book chapter criticizing Judeo Christian demonology for having a lot of misogynist elements. Mm. And this movie definitely flips that uh, such a trite phrase, but flips that script mm -hmm. Um, I'll edit it in a better <laughs> phrase later. <laughs> but it does. It does. It does. That's what's happening. <laughs> it does, and it's uh, in really novel ways that that is such a good connection to make. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, so so that's kind of I always love to highlight the the background of of the creature and how it was designed because we don't see that a lot. But I kind of want to now open it up to dig into the. The, the themes and the context and really just kind of dig into the movie. And uh, Emily, I, I'd love to start off with you because I know that you've written about this. I know you have a lot of uh, solid, strong opinions on it. And I'd love to chat about it with you. I would love that too. Where should we start? <laughs> Wherever you want. Oh God. Oh no. Okay. There aren't wrong answers on this show. I think, wow, where to start? I think one of the strengths of this film is how it takes um, this notion of this demon, of this monstrous entity, um, and it, it brings into the modern world a fear that has been plaguing all forms of human society since humans were digging around in the dirt. This fear of women and this fear of mm -hmm. what women can do to men and you know you talked about how um the succubus is this really old legend and how it's kind of changed throughout the years and it's kind of found different forms but ultimately you know you take a succubus or a, a siren or a whatever mm -hmm. um 
there have been all these different monsters throughout history, through different cultures and through different places in the world, but they're all there to strike fear into the hearts of men because women can be your undoing. You might think you found a really mm-hmm. nice girl next door, but she could be a monster mm-hmm. who just devours you from the inside out. So seeing that brought into a modern story was something that I think, um, gives the film a lot of, you know, a lot of legs, I guess, backbone, (laughs) something, (laughs) because it makes it something that, you know, it's in a high school. It's something very, very of today. And it's starring, you know, a a pair of teenage girls who are best friends, but at the same time, it's echoing something that has been a part of our culture since forever. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's absolutely true. And it's so uh, interesting too, because there are some, um, it's interesting that, Jennifer in succubus form preys on men, but her interactions with her her sort of best friend, Seyfried's character, it, it kind of soft establishes that Seyfried's character uh has some sort of lesbian feelings towards her. It kind of suggests it, and then they actually kiss, and it's very uh a weird, demonic, creepy, intimate moment. <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting that she preys on men explicitly, but it's not just because they're attracted to her because she leaves Seyfried alone otherwise and goes off and kills and and attacks her boyfriend. Right. And there's even that moment um, uh, early on in the film after the fire when um, Jennifer kind of stumbles into Needy's house and like demon barfs all over the kitchen floor. (laughs) (laughs) She you know, they have this moment together where Needy's afraid and Jennifer's like all up in her business. And then Jennifer turns around and leaves. And later when Jennifer's like giving the full recount of what happened that night, she tells her all about the sacrifice, all about the band and the curse and all of that. She says something to the degree of like, I had to go, I couldn't do it to you. And so like, she recognizes that there was potential prey in Needy, but she stopped herself from doing it. And she chose to focus her attention on the guys at school instead. Right. And it doesn't necessarily explain why, but not explicitly. But I think it's interesting that when the succubus is sort of inhabiting Jennifer's form, it retains a lot of her memories her character traits it can appear she's more predatory when she's being a predator but it can switch back and forth to being sort of seamless so there's an element in in the thing and that's what i love about the depiction of this monster so much like it's not a full-on possession where there's something other walking around in jennifer's body like jennifer's in there too like we still get her personality we still get some of her like real thoughts and feelings, but then there's kind of a, a blurred line as to where she stops and the succubus begins. Right. Right. And it's also kind of interesting because you don't know exactly what happened. It, it talks about how a failed virgin sacrifice can succeed, but allows the, the, the sacrifice to sometimes be permanently inhabited by a demon. But then it also implies that they disposed of her body in the, uh, what is it? The devil's kettle whirlpool. It doesn't mm-hmm. show oh, them yeah. doing it, but it kind of implies that strongly. And they say in the beginning, they, they, they go into discussing how nobody really knows where 
it leads to. And that's a scary but true fact, by the way. I double-checked that, and they haven't been able to figure out where the hell that fucking whirlpool goes to. It, it goes could be hell. To hell, my friend. It could be, damn it. <laughs> and the official policy of this pro monster show, or pro monster <laughs> show, is that it does. <laughs> <laughs> so now that's a fact. Um, and so it's an interesting thing because it, it leaves open some questions, but it definitely points strongly enough in that direction that it could be, yeah, this entity that's literally inhabiting her body and they're coexisting to some degree. It's, uh, I just realized how we should really view it is just like Revenge, the movie Revenge. Uh, and yes. something just gets her, uh, wakes her up while she's impaled at the bottom of it. And I think, yeah, I mean, that, I'm joking about that, but I think uh, <laughs> it is important that, that she is sort of complicit uh, in the demons. Like she, she did stumble into this in the most horrific tragic way but she is kind of she like as she sort of says she's she's okay with this turn of events as far as like what it means for her regular life like i I think um you you talk about like the the predatory aspects i think yeah it's not a big jump for her to be more predatory because she already refers to men like to the uh, men as salty morsels uh Mm. so like she talks about them like there's something to be consumed and the way she... And that they're seasoned. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, the way she's very... She treats them very disposable. Um, and that's also like, yes. you know, that's how a lot of the men... Oh, you know, how a lot of men in the world act. So it, it is... It's one of those things where it's like, well, she's a she's a bad thing fighting other bad things in that sort of way. But... Yeah, how, how she sees it. Yeah, yeah, but she... Yeah, without mm-hmm. making it explicit, I think... You're right that she she is targeting men, um, and and maybe that's one thing I can ask is, I was curious if you guys thought, um, you know, a couple of times when she's talking to the boys before she kills them, you know, she's like, "I need you afraid, I need you hopeless," and she sort of implies yeah. that, and I was wondering if there was anything to that beyond just you know the monster sort of humoring itself and chewing the scenery, or like maybe fear seasons the meat. You know, like, I I don't know, I get... Like the Pennywise reference? Yeah, like that kind of, like, I, I did you, either of you make anything of that beyond just... I think there's definitely something to that, because I think that that line in particular, for me, establishes um, the, the murderous activity, I guess, of this creature as needing to be, it needs to be malevolent because otherwise like she could get blood anywhere. She could get it from the butcher shop. She should, she could get it from a blood bank, like in Buffy, but like she needs not only to get it from the source, but she needs them to be frightened. She can't just, you know, go up and knock them out and start drinking. Like there's something to her being able to prey on these men and make it the most terrifying experience that they've mm-hmm. ever had. Yeah. I, I think it's a, a, an interesting subversion of power relationships as well, because, oh, for sure. because you have, you know, macho posturing of, of Chris Pratt's character. You have the sort of like soft predatory thing of indie rockers who sacrifice a quote unquote virgin. Mm. Uh, you have all these different ways to be predatory and to Lord power over, uh, uh, women for men and so to just kill uh i'm gonna get flagged for this somehow <laughs> so to just 
to just conceptually to kill a man per se isn't necessarily a full subversion, right? Because it is a subversion of force, but the total subversion of power is to have such dominance that there's a level of, of sort of impotent fear, which is what she wants. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. And, and I think that's also relevant because, um, like uh, Karen Kusama brought up on the commentary, how important it is that men would just, as a general rule, men assume that women don't have physical power. And that's why every single person walks with her into the weird woods or the abandoned house. Like it's no big deal because a, they don't assume she could ever do anything like to really hurt them. Uh, Even like the scrawny, like, you know, the scrawny kids, like they're not worried about it at all. Um, and then B, like what she, do, what can she do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then B, they're out there yeah. being tempted with the promise of like the hottest girl in school. So like, the right, the two of those. This chick said she'd bone me. I will totally go into the creepy yep. house. I was promised right. that. Yeah, she just like pulls up with a free candy van, <laughs> and they're like, "What can that cheerleader do to me?" <laughs> yeah, and I think kind of within that line, um, you know, she her position, I don't know how to say this, her position within the school and her interactions with these boys, it's different pre-succubus and post-succubus. Like pre-succubus, like she's used to being the popular one and she's used to being the kind of object of their desires, but she kind of has to stand back and wait for them to come to her. And she can be as flirtatious as she wants, but the way she pursues is very kind of hands off versus once the succubus is involved it's a very aggressive state of pursuit yeah yeah she does does seem to before she puts herself in situations and kind of soft relies on you know male libidos to get whatever she wants but it also doesn't the movie doesn't imply it doesn't really slut shame her character it implies that she's had sex but that you know it doesn't treat her as easy quote unquote yeah but then after the transformation she straight up goes like, hey, you, come here. <laughs> well, and over and over and over. Yeah. Um, another thing that came up in the commentary was was about the sexuality and how when they, when the band has Jennifer at Devil's Kettle and they're about to sacrifice her and she's uh, trying to lie her way out of it, she's, she's saying that she's not a virgin. And they talk about how she doesn't even see the value in virginity she sees the value in experience. So like her entire perspective is built around essentially sex positivity. We're like the more, yeah. the more desirable thing is for me to be sexually experienced. That's what I'm going to tell. Like, that's what I'm going to use to lure these men in. She doesn't understand their, you know, like the movies that would be looking for, or the, these tropes where uh, someone's sacrificing a virgin or why virginity would be important. Yeah. 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 Uh, are there other themes or contexts that that really strike you about the film or i think one thing that is uh again important because this is so focused on um like sort of the teenage girl experience is the ways in which her like she's got the two phases and you, you talked about like the multiple levels but there's the real i feel like the easy sort of binary phases are like she's either hungry or she's satiated so like she's either pre or post meal mm-hmm. and the ways that those uh, conditions are very gendered. Um, like the when she's hungry, she is 
pretty much ever, like the she's the way you describe her would be like mostly cliches about a woman who's on PMSing. Like she has that line about PMS being invented by the boy run media and. Oh yeah. Oh, and then um, <laughs> there was the later line too in the pool scene where she makes a reference to to uh, plugging periods yeah. and plugging and yeah yeah. And so like yeah, I don't know. Like the I guess I guess I'm interested what you guys think of what makes a succubus a succubus beyond. Is it just a vampire who who has sex specifically or who uses sex specifically? Um, I don't know. She kind of seems like a, a vengeance demon. We've talked about a little bit, uh, getting a little bit. She does. Men, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's interesting to me because this is a, a kind of a funny hybrid example because, okay, she definitely uses like classic folklore succubi. She uses sex as a predatory weapon, but there really isn't any attempt to, there's this, like I mentioned, there's this classic interpretation of having a producing demon offspring or something as, as part of the goal. Mm-hmm. And that's not part of her goal. As far as we can tell, she leaves her victims dead. She doesn't get pregnant as far as we can tell. Well, and you, you mentioned one of the other goals of the succubus would basically be to corrupt. And that's sort of what she seems to be there to do is to like sort of corrupt that yes. the males that were essentially feet or, you know, um, treating her as uh, an object. Yeah. Uh, she definitely seeks to like very different, you know, categories of people as far as the school's hierarchy go. The point, regardless of if they're a jock or if they're, you know, a, a less common goth, you know, she, she wants to corrupt basically, um, you know, it's like a John Hughes movie only instead of Molly Ringwald, it's like a demon <laughs> that wants to corrupt all of them in detention. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Somebody please make that movie. <laughs> Furiously writes notes. You got it. <laughs> um, um, an- another thing that I thought was interesting was that in the commentary, um, I don't remember if, if Kusama referred to her this way also, but Cody referred to Jennifer a couple times just as a cannibal straight up. Um, and so it's again one of those things where it's like, it's it, do they even, I don't think they say succubus in the movie, right? They, they do... Uh, in the research, oh, they in do. the research, okay. they do okay. explicitly because it is one of those things that always just feels so nebulous uh, or hard to pin down. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because the the thing for me is because it's so strange because it seems as though there's enough of a connection that it's not like a, it's not a demon taking Jennifer's form; it is a demon inhabiting her body, Jennifer's body, and doing these <laughs> things. So technically, in a sense because Jennifer also appears to keep some of herself because she didn't cannibalize needy that it is also kind of cannibalism in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Like she exercises choice. And she lures these boys in with the promise of sex, but really in the film, we don't really see her having sex with them. Like totally. it's partially the camera cutting away sometimes, but like, Usually she will get them into kind of a compromising position. And Mm -hmm. then like, like with Colin, so she starts kissing him and I think she like drops his pants down, but then like she breaks his arm. Like we don't go full through the entire sex process before she starts her, her feeding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because the, uh, the trailer 
really sexualizes her and the poster really sexualizes her but the movie really doesn't we don't see her naked we don't see her having sex ever right you can see which half of this was directed by the woman and which one was directed by the pervy marketing Mm -hmm. yeah you really can you're like oh okay so here's uh here's her being predatory here's her interacting thoughtfully with needy comma here's her being all sexy and implying nakedness <laughs> it's very odd it's like a blunt instrument yeah and, and in that way it's it's a shame that those i think those impulses are coming from different parties because again on the commentary you could hear times where it sounded like the studio stepped in to sort of make sure that you know megan fox's like sexiness was emphasized one thing i did want to mention uh or or, or discuss is I think it's interesting that there's and and Needy makes a mention of this to her that of all of the boys at the school, she chooses Needy's boyfriend. Now she won't hurt Needy directly. She explicitly said so and she chooses not to. So why choose her boyfriend to attack? I think part of it I think maybe a portion of it is because the demon finds it fun because the demon's kind of an asshole. Um, But I think that even before the demon, there was a little bit of a rivalry between Jennifer and Chip Mm -hmm. uh, for Needy's time and Needy's attention. So I think that there might've been some desire to just kind of get him out of the picture so that she could have Needy to herself, whatever that form may be. Mm-hmm. And and there's also just the general rivalry between them, like, given that the movie is so much about, like, rivalry between female friends, um, like, that's mm-hmm. just, I think that's trying to dig into that relationship. Um, and I think actually, well, so I remembered my point, and actually this works back into it. One way I also thought about um, sort of the, how you want to view the hybridization of Jennifer and the demon is... When she pukes uh, the vomit up the first time she, or I guess the night after the fire, um, mm-hmm. it like spikes, like it moves. Uh, yeah. And I was, it made me think of uh, Venom, like specifically like, you know, the symbiote. And Interesting, yeah. so oh, like, cool. you know, whenever that, you know, from the comics, whenever the symbiote shows up, the whole point of it is to make Peter be dark Peter so, like, when you take Jennifer, who's already pretty, uh, I don't know, she's not nice, really. So, uh, when you take that right. and then you add this <laughs> this sort of, like, symbiote factor that's going to amplify all of her ugliness, it's going to create this sort of perfect monster. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, and that would, like, in those cases, the way that the symbiote works in, like, Spider-Man comics, like, the person is still aware, but they're essentially just... They're under, you know, they're under the control of the monster, but they're complicit sometimes, sometimes a victim, sometimes in control. So, like, I feel like that sort of fits with the how Jennifer appears throughout it. Yeah, I, I, I think that definitely seems to be their interpretation of the character because the the succubus is glad to massacre people, and it's cruel and it has malice and it loves suffering. It loves seasoning the meat with fear and hopelessness. But 
it gives a straight up pass to needy mm-hmm. uh which mm-hmm. you know definitely implies that even if jennifer is no longer driving her body she's in the passenger seat and has some say over the destination and what happens by implication that's a good analogy yeah i like it yeah so she's still like pointing to road signs being like we don't need that diner oh wait no turn off here mm-hmm. um <laughs> Like, oh, you want to murder boys at the school? Blank fucking check. <laughs> well, it's like it's like when she got possessed, the demon just showed up and was like, boys suck, right? And and Jennifer's like, yes. And she's like, I know. Like, I was just murdered by four of them. You I thought. So they could write this one shitty song. <laughs> that becomes the anthem. It's like, uh, oh, god damn, just go away. <laughs> um, at... Fun fact, though, it's interesting that Adam Brody has a soft career playing people doing Satan's bidding, but totally different every time because in... Oh, yeah, Ready or Not. uh, (laughs) And Ready or Not, he's the one that's doing Satan's bidding. He decides to be like, what if I wasn't an asshole this time? Mm -hmm. I could try that. I mean, it's not something I've done before, but let me give it a roll. Yeah, just like cracks knuckles. And so he's got this like really ambiguous <laughs> Satan's ambiguous servant career path. Loving like it. it. Yeah. Um, if he has eyeliner, you're doomed. <laughs> right. If he's just a like a prissy rich boy, then you might be okay. Especially if he's drinking. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I don't feel like being a douche today. I just don't. I will say, though, that the low shoulder theme song is my very favorite fake song from a movie. It's really it's a really good like, I mean, it's it is perfectly what it's trying to be as far as like that earworm pop song that is annoying, but that you can't stop listening to or like, yeah. And it feels legit. It feels like it could be a real song that you heard way too many times on the radio. It doesn't feel like um, a songwriter kind of wrote half of it and then crapped out. So they just keep playing that yeah. part. Like it feels like an entirely existent thing that could happen. It definitely does. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's definitely like Satan's darkest work. <laughs> that <particular> yes. <laughs> the greatest trick the devil ever pulled writing that song. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, oh man, where's Keanu when you need him? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I totally agree. Um, one thing I wanted to mention that kind of like, uh, kind of digs into these themes is it's, it's interesting to me the ways in which this movie throws that mythology on its head because we don't see her having sex with them and it never confirms that she does. Uh, she does use sexuality, but um, oh, my, now my train of thought derailed. It's contagious. Yep. It's all my fault. Damn it, Sam. <laughs> um, <laughs> first death comes for the podcast and then Lucifer itself. You're just pissing off everybody these days. Oh man, I didn't know that I opened up such a Pandora's box. Oh God, that's <laughs> next. <laughs> <laughs> But then it's also interesting, too, because so uh, as I I mentioned briefly before, I wrote this academic chapter one time uh, in philosophical approaches to demonology, uh, (laughs) self-reference, that there there are a number of ways in which women are blamed in traditional Judeo-Christian demonology for the ills that befall community. So it's always our fault. Always. 
I'm so sorry to confirm this for you right now, but yes. <laughs> so you have obvious the obvious one that everybody thinks about is the blaming of like even the garden. Uh, if you go back further to Lilith, the queen of the demons, uh, they also posited that women were more susceptible to, to more susceptible to demonic possession due to supposedly weaker natures. Of course, uh, mm-hmm. exactly. Huh? Like, oh, who's going to get possessed? Oh man, bitches be weak. <laughs> Those weaklings. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to edit that part <laughs> out because maybe I do, maybe I don't. Um, but that's what they believe. I thought it was kind of great. <laughs> stays in the cast Um, and then they also blame women as witches for voluntarily worshiping satan and bringing satan into the community that way uh it's one of the reasons why i love eggers the witch so much because it's like its research is spot on for how they perceive women and their role relative to bringing the devil Mm -hmm. in um and then they uh, additionally considered women to be temptresses uh, exposing the community to Satan through temp- the temptation of men. So all the times that, you know, church leaders and local leaders would do shady shit with women, definitely the women's fault for corrupting quote unquote good men. Yep. Not the person in power. As- They're not at fault. No, no, they were good men. They just couldn't help it. And I love that this throws that on its head because Yes, she uses sexuality to make men vulnerable and kill them. But what happened to her was 0% something that she asked for, that she deserved, that she called upon herself. She was, uh, I'm not 100% clear on what caused her to lose agency and go in the van with the guys. Because it seemed to be some sort of like, it wasn't all her like she was stunned yeah. so i'm blaming yes. satan in some part for that because the fire wasn't an accident either also it was true. all part of this thing yeah it looked like a bit of a hex yeah um but it, it's a little unclear on that it definitely didn't look like she was under her own power so she's nobody ever so says i want to go to your really cool van well, like god i just witnessed a tragedy <laughs> you know what i want to do be with a bunch of creepers i don't know that's what's a great plan right now in a rape van yeah two more things that came up on the commentary relevant to this scene is like one um they they uh, cody and kusama like referred to you know why the fire started as should be a mystery like there was no explicit cause but that karen kusama was basically saying like evil's in the house like there's just evil is like there was just evil for some reason mucking about in there. And and I feel like that sort of after effect is what maybe like helps her just sort of yeah. fall into the van. Um, yeah. Because as soon as the fire starts, the band kind of looks at each other like guys. Yeah, they do. And then she, um, she gets like her eyes get glazed and then she goes into the band with them, obviously in her, under some sort of trance and then the last scene before it takes off is her looking at needy with a kind of last moment of agency and like a mm-hmm. well fuck yeah and so yeah yeah it, it doesn't imply to any degree that any of what happens is her fault yeah and, and another thing was like that the other part of the commentary was that when they the scene where she does get in the van and drive away um I hadn't really thought of it in this stark of a way before, but uh, I think it was Kusama mentioned that like 
that really is the last time needy is seeing her ever seeing her friend is just that because mm. after that it's always the demon it's always the whatever you know the succubus and jennifer um and i think i think the other thing about that scene is just that you know much as we can joke about jennifer's experience or you know say she's a slut or something like that like she maybe has been in weird situations that haven't gone mm-hmm. that haven't actually gone all that way but you also i feel like you know with men you never know so she could be in a van like that and it could just be like a normal hangout or you know she could go hook up with one of the guys but she doesn't expect to be taken to devil's kettle and murdered like it, right. it's yeah it's right. something that's hard for her to navigate yeah. i think and i love the way once they do get to the falls and the sacrifices taking place i love the way kusama shot it um there's a lot there's a lot going on and she doesn't shy away from the emotion of the moment and showing how terrified jennifer is um but she's also able to kind of break the tension for the audience when the band starts singing mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which at first I'm like, what the fuck? And then you see Jennifer's confusion and you see her disbelief that th- that suddenly they're making light of this horrific situation. And then the murder in starts and it's just as awful as you kind of thought it would be. Yeah. Right. Like this is this is how casual they are about doing something terrible. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point. It's also interesting too, because, uh, one way I think that for relative to the history of horror, that the film really subverts expectations is that it's another instance where instead of expecting, for example, sexual violence, it's just ordinary violence. And then the rest of the film, all these men expect sex and receive Mm -hmm. violence. Had not thought of yeah. that. It's really, it's really good though. Yeah. Like every single time. Cause she's like, oh, she obviously expects it to be like the bad thing that's going to happen. Maybe sexual violence. And it's in a way, way worse than that. Um, not to say that it's necessarily worse, but in this case it involves her getting demonically taken over after a murder. So yeah, nobody wants you know, that. No, wants I think that. there is a certain underlining of that though in the script because Every time she makes reference to that, as they have her captive, like Adam Brody's character is like, "Ugh, I hate girls." Like, they don't seem yeah. interested in any of the ways that she would normally expect attention. She, right. like, she's literally something mm-hmm. different to them, but it's like something even worse. Uh, we find out. Yeah, like they're trying to do exactly. They're trying to do like a. Uh, they're basically like, "I'm trying to do a Faustian bargain over <laughs> here. Do you mind?" <laughs> like they don't care. Right. Stop talking. <laughs> exactly. They're trying to, and for something as mundane as indie rock band success. Yes. Which, yeah. like, they're trying to be like Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly who. <laughs> really? You're going to murder a girl and go to all this trouble in the middle, as you perceive it, of nowhere to be Death Cab? <laughs> uh, you mean- Which, by the way, they can come on the show if they want. I'm not going to... But come on. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it, and again not to, to always compare it to everything else cuz that's just again my the way my brain works that's why Dead Ringers is the way it is. But uh this this scene in particular can't help but make me think of uh Extraordinary, which I know Emily has seen. 
Have you seen that, Jeff? I have not. So it's it's uh, it's not too much of a spoiler to get into it, but it basically revolves around this woman who is a medium and uh, or she was a medium, right, Emily? And then she sort of stopped because she used to do it with her dad and then he died. Yeah, um, yeah. She kind of pulled away after Yeah, that. and so the connection here is just that uh, Will Forte is in the movie and his character is a shitty magician who is trying to do a real ass sort of satanic ritual to become popular. Uh, and it's, it kind of, his arc is kind of the same arc as the band's. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it, I don't know. It's just funny to see people go to such extreme lengths for what seemed like really shitty ends at the end of the day, like wish for something bigger. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, Damien, it's not the same thing because Damien and the Omen is the antichrist, uh-huh. but he gets to be, doesn't he get to be the president? Yep. As, as the sequels go on, like, and yeah, it's not the same thing, but like, aim high, man. Like, <laughs> like world domination or something. Yeah. Right. I want my shitty single to be number one, you guys. Bring me a virgin. Or maybe that's why they thought they could get away with it. Like, if we just ask for something little, no one's going to come after us karmically, you know? And Satan will totally be down with it because, you know, it's just a little song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I just want that gold record. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Is that too much to ask? Apparently not. Yep. Well, and then they probably thought that if they could just get that, like that satanic push so that the one song got to be number one, then after that, they could coast by on their talent. Then we'll earn it. Yeah. Damn the it. Satan bump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he gives all those like speeches where they're like, really? Why are we doing? And he's like, it's so hard to make it as an indie rock band. Oh, I'm so sad. Yep. For you. Oh my God. Also, I, I will say this is going to out, out my former self as being terrible, but uh, back when Jared Leto was still somewhat likable, uh, and I, you know, mostly I liked him from Requiem for a Dream as a as a teenager, and unfortunately got into his terrible band Thirty Seconds to Mars for a bit. This band seems like the mirror image of everything I remember about Thirty Seconds to Mars, and it cracks me. Like I just can't help but see Adam Brody's character as basically Jared Leto and his band, uh, and yeah, I, can I think. See that. it kind of looks like it too like the the like also if you look at the other members of 30 seconds to mars and you look at the other members of low shoulder they're the same guys i think they're all exactly the same guys like generically attractive men that like are just meant to just stand there and strum a guitar sort of like blankly uh yeah they feel very much the same 30 seconds to the joker you know confession Confession, I did like that song, The Kill. Oh, I think that was probably the album that I listened to. Yeah, it was, yeah. That was the song they sold their souls to Satan for. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then it became the community, uh, uh, the community song for for the tragedy they caused. (laughs) Yes. Indirectly. Yes. uh, That's just trashy. uh, The way that it just becomes everything for that town is, is hilarious. The other thing, actually, uh, smaller connections to the the thing that uh, Succubus remind me of her is I don't know if anyone has any familiarity with the Witcher uh, games or books or I do uh, shows. Oh there is a creature in there called uh, I'm gonna pronounce it wrong. I think like the Bruxa, yes. which is basically a succubus. And then I was like looking up some of that and realizing like, oh yeah, Bruxa is just. Bruja, which is, you know, witch in uh, is right. a specific, what is it? South American witch? 
yes. I don't know what culture exactly. But, but yeah. so, yeah, I, I, again, like, it is weird how the Succubus really straddles everything from vampire to witch. But, like, the main, I feel like, defining characteristic is that it's a woman and that it uses sex. And I think that's will always make it have an interesting place and maybe limit some of... Uh, like, I feel like we're not going to have ever have, like, a, a, a succubus revolution in the horror genre. There's not gonna, just going to be, like, a flood of succubus movies just because it is, I don't know, it's it's unique in that way. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. niche. Yeah, I think I also think as, as the counterposition, there aren't going to be altogether that many Incubus films. Um, you do have Rosemary's Baby in a way, and then you also have House of the Devil in a way. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, there is also there's yeah. one from the 80s I have not seen just called Incubus that does involve I'm pretty sure I think it's like the entity and that there's like spiritual sexual assault or something like that so I have not really wanted to venture to see it uh, but uh, I know it exists yeah um, yeah and then there's the band Incubus of course right it was as we were going over this I was like thinking about that I was like what are they what are they trying to get across with their name Incubus now like do they think they're weird sex Weird sex guys? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like their, their their album. What like make yourself yep. is like make yourself the willing host <laughs> of a demon baby. Yep, yep. I'm gonna sued so bad. I would say one other movie that does actually approach um, almost the succubus idea is uh, Life Force. Actually, yeah, I, I rewatched that a couple weeks ago. Uh, not in relation to Jennifer's body, but then rewatching Jennifer's body I was like, oh, there's actually more here than I thought. But it's just like you uh, mentioned, Jeff, there would be an interesting contrast because Life Force is literally putting her nudity front and center. Um, and this, despite using all of the sort of sexual stuff in the marketing, right. they don't actually, you know, she does not get to that level of, of sexuality in the movie. So, um, yep. It's interesting, but in both cases, they they are using sexuality explicitly to uh, essentially seduce uh, men or the audience or whatever. You know, it's uh, that's interesting. Can you can you tell the audience? Can you describe the plot of Life Force for? So the 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 shortest pitch is it's it's alien but with vampires. But a crew essentially finds a ship out in space. Um, and that has all these weird bat creatures on it, uh, and they find three pods with what looks like human beings. So they bring those back to earth, but uh, it's sort of just, there's like sort of a time jump from when they find them to getting back to earth. And that ship basically just crashes back into earth and the crew is more or less dead or unresponsive. And then um, basically ground forces in England, uh, like, what is it? They uh, check on the ship and rescue the, I guess now there's four pods because there was the three previous pods and there's one other guy still alive. And uh, basically those those three people break out of the pods. They're vampires. They're space vampires for all intents and purposes. Uh, the original source, source book is called Space Vampires. Um, and they, well, let's see, the, the lead vampires, I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> she, uh, she actually hops bodies. So she starts like hopping bodies and interesting. Um, I forget what she's even doing with it. She's basically just trying to take them all down. So she's trying to control enough men to 
uh, take over the planet essentially and using sex as the sort of Trojan horse. Um, so it, it works. As you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It works, works similarly to Jennifer's body. So that remind me Toby. Yes. Hooper, right? Yes. It is. It is a okay. lot of fun. I should see that one. I haven't seen that one yet. It's it like, I kind of always avoided it. Cause I was just like, well, like it just sounds dumb. Like, cause the thing that everyone said was like, oh yeah, it's just a new vampire that walks around a whole bunch. And it's like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. But like, I don't want to watch a whole movie about that. <laughs> but it's a nude space vampire. <laughs> also, if you're making a movie based on a book called Space Vampires, why do you not name your movie Space right? Vampires? Freaking every movie should be named Space Vampires. Right? Life Force is such I a generic title. My name to be Space Vampires. <laughs> <laughs> I would change my own name legally for that. Yeah. Yes! Um, uh, it also reminds me of... Uh, just one scene in Invasion of the Body Snatchers where uh, the 78 uh-huh. version where yeah. uh, Matthew uh, is, Donald Sutherland is approached towards the end by Elizabeth who has been turned and transformed mm-hmm. uh, or more likely re- or more accurately replaced mm-hmm. and she appears to him naked and tries to coax him to come towards her naked which is not how they had been absorbing people and replacing them they usually waited until someone was asleep yeah and then it would just you know freeze them while the copy happens a simple copy and paste Mm -hmm. and in this case they try uh elizabeth tries to actually seduce him to be more vulnerable and i was like oh shoot one scene that time yes um but yeah i love how they don't um i i love how it sort of breaks traditional succubus folklore and it's not really about reproduction and uh it's not even really about sex it just uses sex to produce violence which i don't for the record love but i like that it breaks (laughs) the folkloric misogynistic interpretations of a succubus yeah amen yes And I think that's really cool. Well, I think also like at the end, I think Needy and Jennifer have more, I don't know, it's, it's almost like they're still on the same side because knowing the world we live in, uh, men are usually the enemy in a lot of cases. So it's like, well, she's sort of a, maybe I'm, maybe my, my really bad comparison here should be Black Panther and Killmonger and Jennifer is just Killmonger, but as a succubus. That's, oh, that's, 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 that's the that, you know that was really terrible but it's kind of it kind of works to my uh what i was trying to get at like i'll allow it i i think i don't know there's almost like uh you can sympathize with jennifer's char- like with the demon sort of part of Jen- jennifer's character uh again knowing what she's been through but she- yeah, you have a really good argument for her relative to her character for all men are bad and dangerous. yes yes exactly right but she's obviously murdering. Yeah, and so. even though Jennifer is crazy and murdering now, like she didn't obviously deserve what happened to her, like we talked about before. Right. So there is a little bit of sympathy there that the audience is able to yeah. retain. Right. Like she didn't ask to be murdered. Obviously, she didn't ask to be inhabited by a succubus. She didn't ask to be presumably disposed of in a hell portal. <laughs> like all those things she's innocent of yeah Yeah. and so in a way to kind of come back to an earlier question she 
it takes a lot of inference, but she might have killed or, or tried to kill the boyfriend. And then ultimately what happens happens uh, out of maybe protection in her psyche. Maybe. Possibly. It leaves the question very, very open, but mm-hmm. um, possibly. I love this movie. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's so well, good. I was so happy to, to get to revisit it because I've seen it a few times, but not for a few years. And it's so like, there's so much detail and it's so much more interesting than I even remembered. I just vaguely remembered liking it. Yeah. And the filmmaking is super ridiculously good. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think the, like the teen aspect makes a lot of people like ignore everything else that's actually going on behind the camera. Which is dumb. Teen horror is yep. great. I mean, I, I think it's probably the problem for some people is that teen horror is a mixed bag. I just did an episode about Final Destination mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, and I mean, that's a really thoughtful series in a lot of ways. Hells yeah. Yeah, that's it's so good. And I just rewatched a bunch of it and it very much stands mm-hmm. up, you know, uh, in our more modern context. But there's also, you know, a bunch of teen slasher films where it might be fun to watch, but they don't mean much. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that kind of like biases people's perception. Yeah. But you have stuff like this and you have ginger snaps and you have. Yes there's there's a number of ones that have a lot of insightful things to say um this one also had an interesting very subtle callback to i don't know what specifically inspired uh kusama but uh and and diablo cody but it, it seemed like there was a callback to an american werewolf in london as well because you have the protagonist seeing these visions of Jennifer and carnage and things like actively engaging with her when Jennifer's not in the room. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I never made that connection before, but that's a good call. Cause it's also kind of a horror comedy in a way. And, and there might be other films that it was drawing on, but that's one of the more famous. Yeah. And I mean, in a similar way, like it is just a couple two friends that one horrible thing happens to them and one of them turns into a monster and the other one is sort of trying to steer them away from it. It's just that she's alive in this one. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and I love that on that note, the film ends with needy going back to the source of all of this bullshit, which is the goddamn band. Yes. (laughs) Like, yes, Jennifer had to die and we're not excited about that because none of this was Jennifer's fault. So we're going to take out the people whose fault it was. Right. 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 I'm glad you mentioned that too, because one, when it comes to people that perpetuate violence against women like that, 100% fuck them show policy mm-hmm. so two <laughs> like, revenge, like revenge that was so um it was very well handled yeah but because it was very explicit what happened but it didn't draw it out in in a trite way mm-hmm. but it also definitely showed that you know if you you know you can make this faustian deal with the devil but that doesn't mean there are no cons- natural consequences for you. Right. That doesn't mean he's going to have your back further down the line. He doesn't yeah. care about you. <laughs> right. Right. Which is very consistent with freaking Faust, you know? It, it, it's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no, I'll I'll definitely let you make a bargain with me for your soul and whatnot. And I will superficially give you what you want. But, like, the essence of most of the stories is like, and then in five seconds, I'm going to fuck you over. Right. <laughs> I'll give you exactly what you want and then bring a bigger problem into your life that's going to just eclipse that immediately. Exactly. I get what I want. I don't care if you get what you want. (laughs) Like, uh, and it definitely, 
it reinforced that. And I love that about the film. So fun. Oh, one, uh, one thing that I did want to mention real quick is that, uh, I love what it implies about, uh, the transmission of succubus characteristics or what have you from like a partial bite, which is another like werewolf trope or vampire trope. Um, Mm -hmm. so is there anything you make about that? Because that's that's kind of unusual in terms of demonic transmission. That that's I think where I ultimately open up. I'm like that's where I want to see the world open up and see what else she would do with it. Because without knowing more, well, okay, it's at the end of the movie, so I'm not going to apply like a whole lot of scrutiny to it, regardless. But like, sure. if I were to like, I don't know, it, it would maybe be harder to figure out an answer within this movie. But if we open up the idea that like, oh, we'll learn more about it later. Like, I'm less concerned about like, why does she all of a sudden have powers? Why does she get powers from getting bit? Um, but at the same time, right. I, I like that there is clearly a mythology or it's hinting at a mythology, even if we don't get all of it. Um, I would always rather have that because it uh, like sort of excites my curiosity. Agreed. Yeah, I think that you can, you know, clearly argue that, oh, well, it was there just so we can have the ending scene and we can give her a way to get out of um, wherever she is, jail, mental hospital, whatever. (laughs) But I think that leaving Needy changed at the end of the film as well does, um, gives her character the space for a little bit more growth too. Plus, I think it's just kind of badass. If a demon wants to come bite my shoulder, that'd be okay. Yeah, that ending was cool because it, it didn't imply that she was possessed. It just implied that there were some like transmission of characteristics to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she's clearly not going about killing random people. Um, she's more aggressive, maybe. So like, I don't know, maybe she's like 10% demon soul. Yeah, I was going to say, we didn't even talk about the fact that at one point Jennifer hovers and then doesn't Needy hover right at the end too? Yep. So like, yeah, she's in her yep. cell thing and has to fly up to get out yeah. the window. So again, like, I like that they're, I don't know. I guess I don't know if succubus traditionally fly, but you know, vampires technically can. So I guess it doesn't seem all that odd, but it feels again that that's just where like I feel like a lot of people would lazily think this is just a vampire movie when like the yeah, fact which is common to a lot of succubus yeah. literature and film but because you know she she does have very distinct characteristics that make her something different and i think also change just the the general tenor of the film so yeah i also think that that demons uh in folklore and in film are very widely interpreted in a variety of ways that are not consistent yeah. uh, even yeah. if you go back to judeo christian theology generally so Satan's just, you know, like a fallen angel, basically with no creative powers, but yet apparently can also mastermind the mass corruption of all humans simultaneously and is this weird string puller for literally every possible bad thing, despite not being able, like there's no omniscience or omnipotence. Mm-hmm. And so it's just wildly kind of inconsistent generally. And then that's transmitted to, Oh, maybe they can fly. Maybe they can't, maybe they can do all these weird things and maybe not. Maybe they're corporeal. Maybe they're incorporeal. Yeah. What do I need them to do right this second to make me feel better about things? Yeah. Like, Oh, I swear, honey, I didn't uh, mean to, I know that's your sister, but demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were demons. She flew. She did. It was terrifying. I'm really the victim here. 
Well, I mean, I think this all just goes back to like how well I think this movie modernizes that idea of the succubus and like really brings it forward. Well, I, I will say that the the one criticism I have of Jennifer is not her killing lots of teenage boys. It's uh, or or the the succubus uh-huh. per se. It's that when it gives, I guess this is a really criticism of the succubus because it's a criticism of needy. Um, when she inherits the powers, she's a real jerk to that worker at the asylum. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, like she oh, like yeah. kicks a random lady in the face. I mean, she's just a worker. Come on. <laughs> like, I don't care if you kill a whole band in public, but like, you don't be mean to workers. Mm-hmm. They're just doing their job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Karl Marx versus demons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah but overall i think it's a it's a it's a great film i'm i'm so glad to have you both on and get to i feel like we talked about a lot of really awesome aspects of it that that i think get neglected yeah and it was really great to have you on and do that yeah thanks yes. so much this was fun and i think that um if people you know i think more and more people are watching jennifer's body or giving it yes. a rewatch if they weren't on board the first time around but i think that it's definitely a film that has found a bigger audience and a new audience and will continue to kind of cement its place in horror it's you know mm-hmm. it's finally getting the respect that it deserves and it's not going anywhere no i think so and I'm very excited for Kusama's uh, Dracula film. Yeah. Yeah, I was <gasps> yes. just thinking of that earlier, how great that she went from this not-quite-vampire movie to now, like, the vampire movie. <laughs> yeah, like, I want that in my eyeballs right yeah. now. Now. But anyway, um, that wraps up this episode, and I would like to extend a special thank you to Nolan and Emily for appearing on today's episode, and I encourage you to check out their work. Fans of this show can find us on Spotify, Google, and iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. Where can our listeners find your work? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Nolan underscore McBride, uh, or the uh, show's Twitter handle, which is at Dead Ringers Pod. Yeah, that's where you can find me. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And you can find me on Twitter at Horrorella Blog, um, and also over at at the dead ringers lending my voice and you know thoughts when i have them and they don't crap mm-hmm. out on me mm-hmm. <laughs> right that's what editing and for. this has been a lot of fun so thank you jeff yeah um so thank you both for being on the show and uh audience at home thank you for listening and i will see you next time once more i'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening from the dawn of recorded human civilization we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.